Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on HighTruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to follow the science on marijuana. Hello, everyone. So nice to join you for another consumptive discussion of high truths. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Safe injection facilities, overdose prevention centers, Supervised injection facilities, safe consumption facilities, drug consumption rooms, and harm reduction centers. These are the various terms used for medically supervised places to use drugs. The very first modern supervised consumption site was in Bern, Switzerland, back in 1986. It was part of a project on combating AIDS with information on safe sex, safe drug use, and clean needles. Australia has operated such centers since 1990, and Canada has such sites as well. New York City is the very first in the United States to have a government-authorized supervised injection site that started in November 30th, 2021. And with that introduction, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, my name is Lisa Spano. I'm a nurse case manager at a busy inner city emergency room and in the ER we care for many patients who use drugs. So thank you so much for bringing high truths to the issue of drugs. Uh, I'm curious about the concept of safe injection sites. Thank you, Lisa. Lisa, you are a miracle worker in the emergency department. Doctors and nurses give medication and fluids, but you help people find their way home, fix their wheelchair, figure out their insurance benefits, get connected to community resources. You know, all of society's social problems land right in the lap of the emergency department, and you and case managers like you are the added angels in our department. You're curious about the concept of safe injection sites. And to bring a good science-based answer, I have an expert that researched that question, Dr. John Searles. Dr. Searles is a doctor of psychology. He was a substance abuse research and policy analyst in the Vermont Department of Health. He's appointed member of the Substance Misuse Prevention Advisory Council for Vermont and serves on the council's equity, prevention, and policy subcommittees. 
He has numerous publications, NIH grants, and is author of two books on alcohol and the family. You can find Dr. John Searles' bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. John Searles, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. So, John, you started your career back in Berkeley. A I campus, did. A campus known for drug culture as well as to prestigious academic. What led you to a career in substance use? Uh, as an undergraduate, I got involved in one of my professor's uh, alcohol labs. You know, when you're an undergraduate, you have to get letters of recommendation and, and you have to work in labs. And um, I just was fascinated by it. And um, so I've just pursued that ever since. Although everybody asks me the question, uh, are you or anybody in your family an alcoholic? And the answer is no, it's purely academic. I'm very interested in, in and then it, of course, expanded to other uh, substances uh, along the way because I work for the Department of Health. All right. So academics. So we have an academic question for you then. Um, okay. Lisa Spano is, is a, a case manager, nurse in a busy emergency department, sees a lot of patients who have substance disorder and is curious about the whole concept of safe injection sites, consumption sites. What is the science behind that? Well, that's an excellent question and a good setup. Thank you very much. Um, as I mentioned uh, when we were talking before, that I was the I did the literature review for the Governor's Opioid Coordination Council, uh, prompted by a letter from a senator asking about uh, safe injection facilities, drug consumption rooms. There's uh, uh, overdose prevention slides. There's all kinds of names for them. So. Um, I did look at that literature pretty closely. And of course, most of the research is coming out of uh, a place called Insight in Vancouver, Canada, which was the first uh, safe injection facility to open uh, in North America. There was several that had been uh, in, in Europe and those were mainly started in order to address the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s because um, they expected to, to have an epidemic if they didn't do something about it. So this literature I, I found uh, quite interesting. Uh, and in, in terms of the science behind it, it's very interesting because the people who uh, did the evaluations, which was mandated by the Can Canadian uh, Supreme Court, uh, were also the people who promoted the safe injection facilities. Uh, so I had a problem looking- A little bit of a conflict of interest there? Well, that was my impression. Um, so I looked at the, the, the literature that they provided, that they published in very high profile journals actually, and found some really serious uh, issues with what they were saying and what, was I, what, what I actually looked at when I looked at the literature. So for example, uh, one of their main claims was a 35% reduction in, in the, the rate of overdose deaths within 500 meters surrounding the Insight facility uh, in the first year they opened. Now, first of all, this is often misinterpreted as a 35% reduction, uh, reduction in deaths. It's actually a 35% reduction in the death rate compared to like a 9.6 reduction for the rest of Vancouver. Well, it turns out that Part of the reason for this is that there was a, a tremendously increased police presence around uh, Insight uh, six months prior to it opening. And I'm talking about 24 hours, seven days a week, uh, 56 to 60 additional police officers, which essentially moved the drug market from around that area to a different locale. Uh, 
So there was, in, in other locale, there was a significant increase in, in overdose deaths. So uh, that's, that was my uh, original main problem with, uh, the, with the research that they published. Right. So, um, so this, can you explain the difference between safe consumption, safe um, uh, needle and needle exchange? What's the difference between consumption site, injection sites, and needle exchange? Well, again, an excellent question. And, and we're promoting, uh, I, I would be advocating for uh, um, needle exchanges, also called, uh, called syringe service programs. Um, and safe injection facilities essentially are places where people come with their own drugs, right? They're purchased outside of the facility. And there are several stations. I, I can't remember how many that Insight has, but, you know, up to like 30 stations where people come. They get uh, clean needles. They get uh, the equipment they need to inject. They inject. And then if something happens uh, in that process, uh, there are medical people around to, uh, to help them. So. Not surprisingly, there has never been an overdose death at a safe injection facility. But that's not the right question, right? Exactly. Right. The, right. So I, that would make sense that if you are being supervised as you're using drugs, they can reverse you. But Correct. that doesn't mean the total deaths for that community go down. It may actually mean that the community goes up because there is, a, you know, they feel safer. Um, that's a, that's exactly right. That's a, that's very perceptive of you. In fact, there are some data, for, well, uh, data from Australia actually that suggests that the rate of overdose, just overdose, not overdose deaths, uh, at, at the facility in Sydney, um, were 32 times higher than what they reported in the past. The clients reported in the past, which uh, you can, you know, I, this is. Not hard data, but I so but I just want to point out that people may be testing the limits of what they can take because they want to get as high as possible. There, there's a concept in harm reduction that says meet the patients, meet the clients where they're at. This seems like you're asking people to oh don't use drugs at home, come come to us, use it here. Isn't that the opposite of the meet people where you are? I think that's again that's very very well stated. Um, harm again. I'm not opposed to harm reduction in, in principle. Um, it's just uh, the other. Well, the other main issue about this is that uh, uh, safe injection facilities uh, presumably reduce bloodborne diseases, obviously, uh, but so do syringe exchange programs. In fact, most of the bloodborne, most of the data, most of the uh, uh, reduction in bloodborne diseases from safe injection facilities is due to clean needles and clean equipment. So they they're making claims that really you know really don't don't meet what the data say. Yeah. Um, speaking of injecting, it seems like fentanyl now because it's so potent that is our number one killer by far in, in America um, is mostly smoked rather than injected. Are you seeing both? You know. Um, the news reports, the uh, the data we get here uh, in Vermont, are, and, and I think almost all over the country, is about injection drug use, and and how um, that's fentanyl has just been a just you know been a huge problem. It's now in uh, apparently being mixed with cocaine, um, 
there was some reports early on that I, I'm not sure have been um, substantiated that it was even in marijuana, but it's the it's the it's oh it's heroin that's the, mostly the, the culprit here with the fentanyl. I I I don't I don't know. I haven't seen the recent data. Maybe because it's just new. I mean, I'm just running into patients in the emergency department, and it seems to me that the people who say that they're using fentanyl and they're they want to get treatment for opiate use disorder are mostly smoking it because it's so potent they don't need to inject it. I, and I'm wondering, cause I, and I'm wondering if that'll decrease the infectious rate. I, I, I don't know. That's a question. Oh, no, it's a good question. Not, but I'm, I'm really not, I'm not familiar with that, that, uh, that approach. I, I, I yeah, it's, it's, uh, it hasn't come up in most, in most of the literature. I mean, it's, I find it interesting that clinically you find it in emergency departments, but all we talk about uh, is injection drug use. Right. And I just want to make sure um, that our listeners know that you and I both support harm reduction, but the federal definition of what harm reduction is, which is science-based, evidence-based, syringe exchange, naloxone, fentanyl strips, right? Yes. Um, This is a brand new thing, um, started for the first time in New York. And have you heard any of the outcomes from from New York? And are they measuring the right things, right? Because if they're just measuring 500 feet within the site, they're not measuring the right things. Yeah, they don't have a good methodology right now for in terms of a scientific approach. Uh, I, I have read in uh, the Times and other uh, local papers in New York that they have, you know, stopped hundreds of overdose deaths or overdose, I should say. And I, we don't have any way of knowing if those would have occurred with or without the safe injection facility. Um, as I, I think I mentioned to you in one of my emails, I'm really quite puzzled by the fact that these these sites are operable in in New York City uh, because there are so many barriers in terms of I, I assume there's no there's no doctors involved in these. Uh, I, I I've tried to find out about how they've opened up. Uh, I think there's there's probably a, a nurse. Even so, their uh, their licenses I would think would be uh, liable to uh, for uh, to to be taken away because this is not a legal thing in the United States. Yeah. Well, um, I, I I don't know the legality of it, but I want to know about the science, right? If there's something good that saves lives, and why would we not do it? But it doesn't say this doesn't seem science based to me. So, for example. I, you know, I'm just looking at, you know, every day I see patients who use fentanyl, overdosed on fentanyl intentionally or unintentionally. Um, and it seems to me that a, a American consumer of drugs wants to use them where they want to use them. So we need to bring treatment to where they are, right? The classic uh, statement of bring treatment, meet people where they are. And yes. that means we need to bring naloxone treatment, harm reduction to where they are, Um you, I agree with that. Use the scuba diving method, right? Like I'll use with the partner and have somebody watch. Yes. And, yes. and and if you talk to patients, I mean, I saw a patient the other day. I asked him, you know, how many times have you overdosed? He said, I don't want to tell you. You won't believe me. I said, I'll believe you. It's nine times. Nine oh, my goodness. Times, you know, yeah. and he's, he's used it on some, someone else. So he's an experienced user, thank God, alive. Yes. Um, but uh, I, I, I wonder about that. I also wonder about resources. So I don't know, what is the cost-benefit uh, of such programs? Has that been studied? I think that was in your um, review for Vermont, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. 
it, it has been studied. It's been studied inappropriately, in my view. Uh, for and one of the reasons is some of the, the there, there's no uh, actual data. These are just modeled based on uh, assumptions. Uh, even though Insight's been around since 2003, they haven't they haven't collected any data that's. I'm sorry. In, Insight is the safe injection facility in Vancouver, the downtown east side in Vancouver, the first one to open in, in North America. Um, as I mentioned, um, they were evaluated by people who were uh, uh, advocates of that facility and that approach. Um, so anyway, the cost-benefit analysis, uh, in in terms of what's I've seen in the literature, the the parameters that they're using are are based on incorrect uh, values. Um, as I said, for example, they use this 35% reduction. Uh, in in the overdose death rate, even though that's inflated by the uh, by the fact that there was this huge police presence in in the area, so that never gets brought up unless you dig deeper into the literature. And the other thing that's a a, a very disturbing issue is it seems to me that the the goal of any um, harm reduction and, and I know this may be controversial should be to stop drug use. To get people into treatment. Well, I don't. I don't think that's the point of tertiary prevention, right? No, I right, think right. harm reduction is not to stop drug use; it's to contain a population, and keep them alive despite their drug use. That's I, I kind of liken it to um, the opioid prescription uh, problem that we used to have. That's what got me involved I, um, as a physician. I was actually at one point part of the problem. And there were two populations, right? The population of pain patients who were on these huge amount of high morphine equivalents, a bag of multiple medications, like, what are we going to do with this patient population? We can't cut them off. We just need to keep them alive. And then the the front end where where I I felt was very important is to to prevent a new generation of Americans becoming addicted to opioids, right? And and right. and that was that's prime. So one was primary prevention, the other one was tertiary prevention. Both important, but the way we solve the problem with opioid prescriptions is front end primary prevention. Right, I agree with that. And I, I and I also I understand what you're saying about tertiary prevention, but part of the sales uh, agenda with well, particularly in Vermont, there's a there's a group advocating for. Uh, safe injection facility here is it it gives people gets people into treatment um, and that's just not true it does not you know as you point out um, that's not the job of what safe injection facilities are for they're there to make to keep people alive for the most part um, but they also talk about access to treatment well access to treatment is not engagement in treatment and as far as I can tell from the literature I've looked at both in Europe and uh, in Australia and in Vancouver only about 11% of individuals who visit these facilities uh, get any kind of go to any kind of treatment at all, and it's usually not for a very long period of time. They typically relapse. Right, and let's talk about treatment. Vermont is very famous for treatment, right? This hub and spoke model um, right, right. that's been copied a lot of places. Tell us about what that is. First of all, what is the Vermont hub and spoke model? And well, the the um, the hub are, are methadone clinics. Uh, but the really exciting uh, thing about the hub and spoke model are the are is is the spokes, which are uh, family practices. So people can can go there. Uh, you know, I'd I'd go for a, a, a regular checkup, right? 
I, I go for whatever reason, and I'm sitting next to somebody who may have a, a, a heroin um, dependency, heroin a substance use disorder, and, and you wouldn't know that. And that, that's a great thing. So they're not singled out. There's not stigma. Um, and they go see their doctor, and they get they can get prescribed uh, uh, buprenorphine, which uh, which uh, is a huge thing in Vermont. Um, and that's a you know that's the model that's been copied and, and been promoted from Vermont, and it's been very successful. Interesting, and that's still going on. You're still oh, using absolutely. that hub and smoke, right? Yeah, I, I think for some time we copied that in California as well, and we had people from Vermont come. Um, I know those people. Yes, yeah, <laughs> they're famous. Uh, we had them on this show. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, let me ask you about these because you've spent so much time studying and writing this. You wrote a report to Vermont studying um, these safe injection sites, correct? Yes. You were a part of the the governor's Vermont's governor's opioid coordination council and published this report. What were, what does it cost to put together such a a program? Uh, well, in 2003, uh, Vancouver, the Canadian government spent $3 million establishing, and they supported to the tune of $3 million a year. Uh, I don't know what, I tried to find out what New York City's was, but I, is, but I don't, I couldn't uh, find any, any budget or, or cost estimates for that. So that's part of the other issue is it's, it's, um, it's difficult to think about that as a sustainable number, especially for a, sta- a place like Vermont. And the, the other thing about that, that is important in Vermont is that, you know, we're a very rural state. We, we, don't, we don't have uh, uh, population centers. You know, Burlington, Vermont is our, is our biggest population center, and that's uh, 4,000 people per square mile, and Vancouver has 13,950 per square mile. So it's a different, different ballgame altogether. You know, did you survey people and ask them if they want this? Because it seems very paternalistic, like we're going to create this thing for you. Did anybody ask people who use drugs, especially the highest risk drugs, people who inject drugs, did anybody ask them, hey, would you want to come here or would you rather use at home? I think there have been surveys and people often respond very positively to it. But, but you know, the, 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 the best uh, answer is hard data, which is in, in Vancouver at Insight. They accounts for 5% of the injection drug use in that area. So... 95% of the injections are done outside of the facility. That tells you something. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is also, <laughs> that is kind of important. I, I also, I wonder about the financial in, in, in investment. I, 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 again, I'm, I've got the viewpoint of in, uh, as an emergency and addiction physician working on the front lines. And when I need to send someone for treatment, you know, it's not perfect, but there actually right. are places there are, there are a few places. If if I want to send someone to use, they could use in an infinity type of places. But the need, the community need that I see that I think is true throughout the United States is there's a lack of pe- places for where people can be um, safe not using. Yeah. There's, yes. There, there is infinite places to use, and we could make those places safer. But as far as places where you can go for people who don't want to be around the drugs, where am I going to send them? I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather open up safe sobering facilities rather than safe injection facilities. I see that a greater need. I think you're correct in that. And, and I think that, uh, 
you know, treatment in this country has been totally underfunded. Uh, even sober housing for alcoholics is underfunded. Um, so I, I think that's a very good point. Uh, tell me about crime. You Part of your report studied crime around areas. Is that a thing or is that a fallacy? Well, again, that goes back to the fact that uh, the, the data that have been presented showed a reduction in crime. But you know, when you have 24-7 uh, increased police patrols in the area, gee, crime is going to go down. And that's exactly what happened. But uh, again, it just gets displaced from one area to the next. It's not is, is it because they're studying a too small of a radius? Like if you studied, you know, I don't know, whatever radius around the safe consumption size, you know, overdoses would be down and crime would be down. But if you just expanded a couple that's miles, right. would it be higher? That's exactly right. Um, in fact, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. And I was just, I think uh, the uh, New York facilities are only open a few hours a day. And there was a report recently in one of the New York newspapers about how people, when they're when they're closed, people come near there and they don't know they're closed, and they will go to the subway uh, stations and 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 uh, and use their use their heroin there, uh, and that's been a real problem. I don't see the logic behind that. I, I mean, again, I know my patients. I'm asking them to wait like an hour for their buprenorphine to work, so I can get them a detox bed, and they get impatient and leave. Let yeah. alone go to a certain facility at a certain time and day and, and time. That, right. Um, no, you're you're quite right, and I I think it would be almost impossibly impossible financially to have a place that's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's just uh, how, think of how much that would cost the staff. Right. I think that's that uh, right. The investment maybe. It. I really wish that they're studying this in a re rigorous scientific way, so we could have the answer. And and um, because I see places around the country just making non-science, it wouldn't be the first time, right? Where governments are making non-science-based decisions or making emotional and political decisions rather than the evidence-based ones. So it'd be, it would be nice to have such evidence. And so people would know, because I think everybody, no matter where we are and how we believe in this, we want to save lives. We don't want people to die. We no just have a different approach on how to get there. Right. You're stealing all my thunder. I, it's all, I'm a, I'm a scientist. I, I believe in science and I, and I, that's, that's what disturbed me so much about the original reports that they were, you know, uh, clearly uh, methodologically inappropriate, and the people who who wrote them and published them uh, knew that. I mean, they had to know that because it, you know it, it doesn't take it doesn't take much to figure out that if you have an increased police presence, you're going to you know get reduced uh, area activity around that area. Um, and also, there's another issue here, and and. You know, in terms of how much it costs, you know, this, as I said in my paper, you know, when you talk about human life, it always comes down to, well. Tell us which paper you were talking about, the Vermont the, one? The, the, yeah, the Opioid Con, uh, Coordination Council paper that I uh, that I wrote. Um, I forgot. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, it, it always comes down to, well, you know, how much is a human life worth, Right. Uh, and and that's a false dichotomy because there's a limited amount of money that governments and and NGOs have and uh, uh, private institutions have. So you can't just say we're going to put every nickel into a safe injection facility and save every life that's that's uh, that we that that's out there. Uh, and for that matter, you know, to this is also uh, controversial because there's the the people in Vancouver and the people in New York City are making tremendous claims about how many lives they're saving. Uh, but there are some independent reports that suggest that um, for, the, for 
for the three million dollars a year and the three million dollar origination cost that it leads to about one life saved per year for for insight uh and in uh, sydney they've estimated that it's over nine nine years again a similar cost uh it was four lives saved that's not trivial i don't mean to say that's true but i'm saying if you put that money into other other areas like you talked about, you know, yeah, places who, to go. Who says that if we put the same money into sobering centers, we wouldn't save two lives a year? That's a, that's right. We don't have that data. I wish we did. And that's would be my, that would be my wish as a scientist to get better data. Yeah. Um, you were uh, talking to me about the Massachusetts Medical Society that they identified some serious issues you mentioned about uh, personal safety of the staff there. Can you tell us about that? What was that? Well, that was more to do with, uh, uh, their, it, it, there are personal safety issues and that actually goes into cost issues because you have to have security in these places. Um, but that was more about uh, licensure and the ability to practice medicine. So if you went and, and opened a safe injection facility, which is a, a federal crime, actually, um, your license would be uh, in peril. And more than that, no insurance, uh, medical insurance would cover you. And that's a requirement for any state. They have, if you're a doctor, you're practicing, you have to have insurance. Although I don't think that that's, I mean, personally, I don't think that that's a big issue. I mean, there's a lot of doctors prescribing marijuana and that's federally illegal too. And that's a, that's an excellent point. Right. So I don't think the government cares about that. And um, I don't know. I think they care about opioids. I really, I, yeah. yeah, but I, I don't, I think, I don't know anybody's going after these sites. It's, it's, a, it's an experiment. Well, the, it has been challenged. The Philadelphia site was uh, uh, the, the Supreme Court uh, ruled against it. They, it was reversed when, uh, the, yeah. So uh, there are, there is some uh, federal history here. Oh, so tell and, me, so tell me about that. What are the, the tell us? Let's talk about the legalities of these places. Is is New York going to get in trouble, or is it state no, by state? I, I I wish I knew the answer to that. I've been trying to find out before we had this conversation, um, but I, I cannot find any information about how they operate, what their budget is. Um, they're supported by four of the five um, district attorneys in in New York uh, who say they're not going to prosecute. But nonetheless, uh, you know, this goes back to the, the crack house laws, which essentially says if you open a facility and you are and you are uh, promoting drug use, they can seize everything you, you own. So and who, who's funding these uh, consumption sites, injection sites in New York? Is that coming from it, public health? No, it's coming from private institutions, as far as I can tell. And some of the some of the money. Maybe coming again. This is the problem I'm having trying to trying to follow this this money. Maybe coming from the city, funneled to uh, treatment centers or syringe exchange. Well, actually, originally these two places that are open were syringe exchange uh, places. So, but I think most of the money is private, which takes some of the risk out. Uh, but there, it's heavily, as you know, it's heavily promoted by the by the mayors and by the district attorneys and by uh, a, a, a lot of public health officials, who I think are, are just don't know the data. And and in in Vermont, what is the uh, what is the climate uh, for these sites? Like, you obviously wrote this report. There was you know an interest. So, uh, how did your f report affect 
um, the, the, the thought process in Vermont? Uh, I think it, at this point, uh, it's not a viable issue, although it's starting to come back again because of the increase in overdose deaths, uh, especially since the pandemic and, because, and, and since fentanyl has been so popular. Um, but there would have to be changes in state law. Uh, there was a, a bill in the legislature this year that didn't, didn't get out of the legislature. Uh, uh, and, and I don't think it's going to go anywhere for the next several years. Yeah, I mean, there's no simple solution and people want a simple solution, right? So it's That's like, right. let's just try this. You know, like we're desperate, right? People are yeah. dying. So we got to try this. Why would you not want to try that? And so if you're saying that you're against it, it's like, well, don't you want to save people's lives? It's like, yes, we do, but we just yes. don't think that that's the right way to do it, right? That's and we're correct. not asking the tough questions, right? The um, So one of the things that you sent me um, was some data on Iceland. You, you, you sent me a nice graphic. It said Iceland has six drug overdoses per 100,000, and the United States... I actually updated your data. The United States has 28.3 overdoses per 100,000. And also that's a huge jump in, in one year. In one year, scary. we went from 21.6 deaths per 100,000 to 28.3, a huge amount. What What's Iceland doing right that we got wrong? Are they just I on an it. island and they don't <laughs> let the Chinese precursors enter uh, Iceland. Yeah, it's I, a very contained. I'd like to tell you I have the answer to this, but I don't. I don't know what the answer is. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Our, our, we have we have a mutual friend who's been on this podcast, Dr. Catherine Antley, and she traveled to to Iceland. I only asked you about that because you sent me that graphic, and so I thought that you had it. I don't remember even sending that to you. So in one of the emails I saw. I thought I saw that. Um, but they 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 invest a lot in primary prevention in families Absolutely. in families at a young age. It's a it's a it's like a not using drug culture, um, opposite of what we have in the United States, frankly, where you know vaping's big, alcohol's big, marijuana dispensaries are you know making record profits. You know, very different uh, culture that starts at a young age. So they've done, I think, primary prevention. Um, Really nice. Better than anybody. And they did that because they were having a serious problem with uh, adolescent and young adult drug use, uh, which was spiraling out of control. So they, they, they uh, put all these primary prevention programs in place and they work and they've been very effective. Uh, we're looking at those, some of those uh, uh, in Vermont as well, like after school programs. You know, that's latchkey kids, you know, who, who have no place to go. And uh, there, there's uh, there's lots of programs that are being uh, investigated. And the ones from Iceland, again, they have really hard data on this. It's really nice to see that they actually uh, are implementing primary prevention programs that seem to be very effective. Right. And I think primary prevention for fentanyl is marijuana. People don't want to say that, don't want to hear that. But I have not met anybody. If you go to those safe consumption sites and ask every single person who went in there, uh, what's the first drug you ever used? Um, they'll say, oh, heroin when I was 18. I'll say, no, 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 what's the first drug you've ever used? And they'll say, oh, well, just weed. I said, how old were you when you used that? I was like, 10, 9, you know, really you, you, young. Yes, you and I and Catherine are on the same page on this. 
Right. So I think primary prevention for fentanyl is uh, is addressing the issue of marijuana. I couldn't agree more. And it's uh, the Marijuana Policy Project and uh, Normal have done a magnificent job of uh, de-emphasizing the dangers uh, of marijuana. Uh, one of which you just mentioned. There are other, you know, serious problems that um, I've also written about. Uh, but it, it definitely is an issue, and and how how we address that is going to is going to define us as a country, I think. Yeah, it, it, interest. We, I, I I had a podcast with Congressman Patrick Kennedy, and he said, you know, we're America. We love our addictions, right? We have yeah. we have an addiction for profit kind of society. We we we've always had from tobacco to opioids, uh, and now marijuana. Yeah. Um, so you're also an expert in alcohol. Tell us about uh, your work in alcohol. Your uh... Yeah, well, that's why I started uh, in the substance uh, use and abuse business. Uh, I, um, as I said, I started off in an in a alcohol lab as an undergraduate. And, and then uh, in Berkeley, I was able, I was able to uh, continue some of that work. I have a, my degree is in psychology and in personality psychology. And at that time, there was a uh, a huge database of uh, uh, of of people in the uh, uh, from all over the world actually that came there to get assessed. So I was able to do some work on a particular scale for my for my dissertation, and then um, I got involved in federal grants, and I was able to uh, get several federal grants as a principal investigator or co-principal investigator, looking at um, alcohol use. Uh, uh, daily alcohol use. And, and I actually was part of the group that uh, tracked alcohol use over two years, over long periods of time. Our biggest study was two years of daily use. People would call in every day. It's called interactive voice response, which you, I'm sure everybody's familiar with. No, we, we don't. So tell us what that is. Well, you know, when you, whenever you, you call a, a company and, and they say, well, you know, for for this, press one, for this, press two. Well, we developed a, a survey, a, a very short survey, about two minutes, uh, that people would call every day to report their alcohol use, their 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 mood. Uh, I can't, there's... If you're bunch. happy, press five. It, well, it was a scale, yeah, you're right, <laughs> exactly. Scale of one to five. Yes, so, and and uh, we I published several articles in that, and, and it was, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's now being used much more widely, um, so that was that's exciting. Um, and and then you know I I I wound up after getting finished having to write federal grants, which you probably know is a real pain because you fight write a federal grant, you get five years of funding, and then two years into it, you have to write another federal grant to continue your 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 studies. So I decided I I wanted to do something else with my life. That's how I wound up in the Vermont Department of Health. Yeah. It, I, yeah, it does seem like a painful process. <laughs> well, it's fun when you can implement your own research program. It's just that it's, uh, you know, it's five years at a time. And as I said, after two years, you have to start writing another grant. Right. And you've had a tremendous impact now, right, with the grants and working with the department, um, with the Vermont Public Health Department. Yeah. Um, any advice you have for Lisa Spanos? Lisa is our case manager, works in a Brisbane emergency department, sees alcohol, methamphetamine, fentanyl, marijuana, um, homelessness, mental health. There's there's nothing. And she's got the very toughest job in society. Um, you know, I, I call 
I call her and the other case managers are miracle workers. I mean, I could do the doctor stuff, but how am I going to get someone home? How am I going to get them to fill their prescription um, or find their keys that are lost or, you know, the amazing problems people have? Um, But she had her question about consumption size, but in, in general, what would your advice be to her? Well, I wouldn't send somebody to a safe injection facility, that's for sure. Um, and the other interesting thing about this that you mentioned, you mentioned alcohol, and alcohol is now just you know completely ignored. It's still the number one emergency department drug. And this just came out from the new uh, um, uh, DAWN data, which is Drug Awareness uh, Network. I can't remember what the W was now. <laughs> but there was a, a survey that the federal government was doing on, of hospitals. This was 33 hospitals. Um, and they're looking at, you know, why people come to the emergency room in terms of substance use. And over half are there because of alcohol. And that's just, you know, that's just sliding under the radar entirely. I don't, it's not under my radar. I mean, I started well, my yeah, career. Well, you work in the ER, right? <laughs> right, right. Not my radar. I mean, I um, I started my career as a medical student. You know, the, the hallways were lined up with people who we we called them drunks in those days. It was not politically correct instead of someone with alcohol use disorder. Through the pandemic, you know, where the ERs were ghost towns and nobody was coming in, but people with alcohol, mental health, and substance use were still coming in. That didn't stop anything. Right. Um, And then, of course, I I don't know if we have a rise or it's just it's something that never ended. It's just been steady stream. It has been, and it has apparently the consumption of alcohol has increased during the pandemic, uh, for probably many reasons. But um, it does, as I said, it's it's disturbing to me that it kind of gets ignored. I mean, you know, we have alcohol. I'm sorry, we have uh, opioids, fentanyl, which are you know terrible, uh, uh, life-threatening drugs. But you know, so is alcohol in in many respects. You know, during the beginning of the pandemic, I, I was uh, banished from um, the kitchen in my house. <laughs> um, and so, and uh, my family just said, you know, just stay in your little room. They didn't want to catch COVID for me. Um, and I didn't go to a grocery store for months. I, I did not. And I remember the first time I went to a grocery store, all masked and gloved up, um, I noticed that they moved the alcohol to the front of the store. <laughs> Oh, is that right? Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in Vermont, you have to buy alcohol, uh, uh, hard liquor in a particular store, state level stores. So you can't buy it in the, in the uh, uh, grocery store like you can in California. Right. Like the blue laws are. Well, say. yeah. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for, for your insights, for your research, your continued work and advocacy. Um and uh, for your insights on the issue. Well, thank you for having me. Great. I want to say thank you to Lisa again. Lisa is amazing miracle worker in the emergency department, um, helping in ways. Uh, it's just invaluable. She's what, an angel um, in our hospital system. All case managers are part one of the, uh, you know, like doctors, nurses in the ER, and our case managers are, you know, we couldn't live without them. Uh, now and um, thank you for you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, 
the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, Doctors Educating on the Harms of Marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their medical library translated for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.